6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 12 through 30. Well, we're continuing our exploration of the epistle to the Philippians. And whenever we go into the Word of God, we always want to do it with prayer. So let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for the opportunity you put before us. We pray, Father, that our lives would be open to what you have here for us as we seek to grow in grace in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, in whose name we commit this hour and ourselves. Indeed, amen. We are continuing in the second half of chapter 2 of Philippians. You know, whenever I find myself thinking about the crucifixion and so forth, I'm reminded of a very unusual illustration that I'm indebted to John Corson for. John Corson's got an incredible gift for applications and illustrations. Well, he tells of a dream. I think, as I recall, he presented this as a dream he had one night, where he dreamed that the, his, the Heavenly Father was giving him a tour of the galaxies. And as they went from galaxy to galaxy and from planet to planet, he was fascinated, of course. But he noticed that there was zeroing on this particular planet and as he got closer, he realized this was a planet inhabited entirely by dogs. And as they get closer and closer, he was startled to realize that these dogs were vicious, snarling, nasty creatures. And uh, he says, well, what's all this about, Father? He says, well, that's what I want you to do, John. I want you to go down there and tell them I love them. I know, I know, they're snarly, vicious dogs, but that's what I'm, well, okay, Father, you're, you're the boss, I'll do whatever you want. But there's a few things you should know, um, John, that this, this, uh, these uh, dogs, when you go down there and give them that message, they're not going to accept it. In fact, they'll probably tear you to pieces. But that's okay, you know. Um, uh, that's, that, that, that's what I have in control. And, and John says, well, okay, if that's what you want me to do. In fact, John, I want you to become, in order to communicate to them, you've got to become a dog. So I want you to become a chihuahua. And he, well, whatever you say. Now, it's going to be all right, John, because when they tear you apart, I will resurrect you. And you'll be, oh, okay, well, whatever you say. But you need to understand that once you do this, you will be a chihuahua forever even after your resurrection. Well, John's colorful little illustration looks a little facetious right up to the end when you begin to realize one of the points he's making is that Jesus didn't become a man just for 33 years. That he, the, the most amazing, you know, as we learn the Bible, the first thing that we're, you know, astonished about is that, uh, that uh, 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 God created man, of course, and created us, and that he became a man and entered our creation, that's mind-blowing as we try to understand all that. But what, And also, as we begin to understand the gulf between a holy God 
and sinful man, as we, as we mature and begin to realize the size of that gulf, the more amazing thing we discover is that as we talk here right now, there is a man sitting on the throne. And uh, Jesus Christ, forever, uh, unchanging. So, um, as we got into the first part of chapter 2, we were confronted with the kenosis. I like to call it the grand parabola, in effect. And um, kenosis is uh, the term it's uh, known by. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. It starts with Christ's pre-existence, and then you have the first phase of that is incarnation. He became a man and dwelt among us. And that brings us to the nadir, the, 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 the bottom end of this, where he goes to the cross on our behalf. And then the second half, of course, is the resurrection, where he then is exalted above all. So he goes from his pre-existence to become a man and fulfill a destiny for us that we couldn't fulfill for ourselves, and then he becomes exalted over all. So what uh, Paul does here in Philippians, he calls for unity in the first four verses, and then he indulges in what I like to call the grand parabola of the kenosis, the condescension of God to become a man, his sacrificial death on the cross, and then his ultimate reign over all creation. Now these doctrines were introduced by Paul in the first part of chapter 2, not for their own sakes, but for very practical purposes. That may surprise you. They were included for an example of the role and obedience and humility that we should have in living our Christian life. Paul will include three uh, additional very, very practical examples before we conclude this chapter tonight. So let's jump in at verse 12, where we left it off last time. Wherefore, my beloved, as, we, as ye have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Wherefore, you know, that Paul uses that wherefore twice in three verses here. And uh, uh, because of this is what the wherefore, really because of this is another way of phrasing it. There are two parallel results of Jesus' conduct. He humbled himself. And he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God exalted him. And uh, Jesus showed the course of his humility and obedience. Therefore, the Christian is to work out his or her salvation. That's the idea here. And uh, to work out. That's not a self-help uh, salvation. Many people misunderstand that. On the contrary, because you are already saved, because God has already entered your life in the person of the Holy Spirit, because you, therefore, have his power at work within you. Because of these things, you are now to strive to express this salvation in your conduct. That's the concept that's here. It doesn't say work for your, whole salva for your salvation or work toward your salvation. No, that's not the idea. Or, or work at your salvation. No, no, it work out, your, uh, uh, find expression of it. Now, the deliverance of Israel uh, from Egypt was not because they merited it. It was entirely because God loved them. If they had their way, they would have stayed there in Egypt. In fact, they wanted to go back. But God trained them for 40 years, and now they were at the Jordan River. And Moses knew, when he wrote Deuteronomy, that, that he would not be allowed to continue with them. He knew that God had called them and led them and was with them even then. And it's on this basis, he argues, that they are to possess the land and live there as God's obedient children. That's what Deuteronomy really is, is a sermon. Paul now 
was about to be taken out of this world himself, as Moses was. They had been in bondage to sin, and God had delivered them too. So they too are to strive for the realization of God's love, peace, holiness, goodness, and justice in their lives. And so are we to do the same thing. And uh, it is God the Holy Spirit in us who does the working, not us. He does it. And that's what he, in the next verse, he says, For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. You know, Adam, of course, lost his free will in his disobedience. He proved it by running away from God when God came to see him in the garden. That genetic defect we call sin is now passed on to us. It's in our genes. It's in our DNA. We are helpless but for God's initiatives. John chapter 6, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. God has drawn you. Wow. The well-known verses in Ephesians speaks twice of works, interestingly enough. You know these verses very well. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Fair enough. But then he continues, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. And of course, workmanship there is poema, it's the word from which we get a poem. One kind of work is condemned because it comes out of ourselves and is contaminated by sin. That's the, f the first verse. The other kind of work is encouraged because it comes from God as he works through us. Very distinct, very important, very basic in the whole program here. So these verses in Ephesians are really Paul's own commentary on these last couple of verses of Philippians. Well, how can we live for Christ in this world? Don't fret what is this world coming to, but proclaim what has come to the world. Now, Bob, uh, uh, Paul is now going to list uh, three specific goals. And as we do this, think about what are your goals? You know, most critical skills in life cannot be learned from a book while sitting on the sidelines. That's why we have boot camps for the military. That's why we have training camps for sports. That's why we have academies for leadership. Most professional activities involve what we call contrary to instinct behavior. An example is scuba diving. If you do, when you're down there and get frightened by something, if you, you instinctively would hold your breath and go up, which is guaranteed to give you an embolism. One of the main things emphasized, contrary to instinct, you, you, you breathe out, and there's a whole thing about that. High-performance driving, one of the things you learn if you're, you're going to go to a Grand Prix driving school or whatever, is the oversteer and understeer, and the difference between them. Uh, understeer, associate that with front-wheel breakaway. And the, the, the whole idea in high-performance driving is weight distribution. Your brakes control the weight. And if when you experience understeer, uh, it's not turning quite as much as your, your instinct would be to hit the brakes, which you're doing the right thing for, the, for a different reason, and that's to throw more weight on the front wheels to break that understeer. On oversteer, it's just the opposite. That's where you're turning more than you intend. And uh, your instinct, when you experience that, if you hit the brakes, it'll make it worse. That's where you need a little, you, you accelerate. That's why when you go around a curve, it feels a little better when you just get a little bit of acceleration. You're, you're compensating for the oversteer. The point is, these techniques you learn on a skid pad, and it's very contrary to instinct, behavior. Uh, aircraft pilot. If you're one of the most dangerous things when you're taking off, you lose your engine on takeoff. 
Your instinct, instinct is to turn back to the runway. Deadly. No, you've got to buy the land that's in front of you. And, uh, and uh, uh, instrument flying. There's a tendency, that you, you can't help it, there's a tendency to fixate on just certain instruments. No, there's six and you need a cross-check to avoid the vertigo and all of that. So there, there's all, in any profession, there are things you need to learn from experience and, and, and by training that you can't just learn from a book. So, see, you and I are not to be of this world, but we are to be in this world. We live for Jesus Christ in the midst of a wicked and ungodly uh, generation, but, and we are not to retreat from the mission field we find ourselves in. So he continues here in verse 14, he says, Do all things without murmurings and disputings. Now the word disputings there is dialogismos, which we, from which we get the word dialogue. The concept here is not to be in rebellion against God's will. He continues in verse 15, That ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. There's a very interesting parallel between the last few verses of Paul in his letter to the Philippians and Moses' comments in Deuteronomy 32. You'll discover the words children and blameless and crooked and depraved generation are in both passages. I'm, I, I suspect that Paul had that verse in mind when he wrote this. Do, Moses said, he is a rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are our judgment, our judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. They have corrupted themselves, their spot is not the spot of his children. They are a perverse and crooked generation, and he continues. So this is... a. Uh, uh, essentially the thought that Paul has here, that ye may be blameless and harmless of the sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye are, you shine as lights of the world. So we are to be in complete submission to God in several ways, doing all the things without complaining or arguing. Our life is to be blameless before other people. Our life is to be blameless before God also. So we're to be like Daniel. Let's take some examples here. He lived in the midst of the fountainhead of ungodliness, namely Babylon, in the court. And he didn't hide in a corner. He lived in the king's palace and became his key advisor. His enemies tried to find fault with him, but the only thing they'd accuse him of was his worship of Yehovah or Yahweh, or however you want to pronounce it. Daniel 6.5. Then said these, these men, We shall not find any occasion against this Daniel, except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Wow, what a credential. We are to live blameless before God. The word here is the same as in Ephesians. In Ephesians 1.4, According as, as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and what? Without blame before him in love. This doesn't mean that we get to the point that we, we will be without sin. Real sanctification lies in the increasing realization of how sinful we are. We need to be open with him. That's what the psalmist says in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. What a petition. And this process is not a one-shot thing. This continues throughout your entire life. That sound impossible? Not with God. He's the God of the impossible. We ourselves are incapable of living out the kind of life that God requires of us. But God is capable of living out that life in anyone who yields to his spirit. 
He does for us and in us what we cannot do ourselves. And the Bible tells us how this will happen. In Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul now is going to include three practical examples of what he's talking about. And the first one is himself. Sounds strange, doesn't it? He goes on, verse 16, Holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yea, if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. Offered. The word offered here in the Greek is actually spendo. It's a pour out as a drink offering, like a libation. When it had a sacrifice, you would throw a cup of wine on it, and it would disappear in a puff of steam. Paul is a prisoner in Rome when he's writing all this, expecting to be offered up in a, on a pagan altar. When he would be killed, it would only be the drink offering poured out upon a far greater offering of their faith. That's what he's cherishing, their faith, as his credential. His achievements, even his pending martyrdom, he placed very low on the scale. Wow. Does your humility, among other Christians, match this? Boy. He gives another example, and that's Timothy. He continues here in verse 19. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ, Jesus Christ. But ye know the proof of him, that as a son with a father, he hath served with me in the gospel. That's the whole thing is a commendation of Timothy here. We learn four things about, this, uh, uh, about Timothy from this. Paul had no one else like him. See, in many ways, he was just like Paul. Timothy was concerned for others sincerely. I mean, really. Timothy put Jesus Christ first in his life, and Timothy learned to work with others. He had developed a skill of cooperation. How devoutly to be wished, huh? But this also says a lot about Paul as a father and a teacher. He says he served with me jointly. Like father, like son, in other words. And uh, I encountered a quote by Socrates I couldn't resist including here, just to, by way of contrast. These are, this is written 500 years before Christ. Hear what Socrates says. He's complaining, Our youth now love luxury. They have bad manners, contempt for authority, disrespect for older people. Children nowadays are tyrants. They no longer rise when their elders enter the room. They contradict their parents, chatter before company, gobble their food, and tyrannize their teachers. Does that sound familiar? Well, we need to remember ourselves that we are bond slaves. And we should also express, but even though we're bond slaves, we should also express leadership in setting standards and lead by example. That's what he's going to continue here. Uh, verse 23. Him, therefore, I hope to send presently, so soon as I shall see how it will go with me. But I trust the Lord that I also myself shall come shortly. Now he's going to go to a third example. We've had himself, he had Timothy, now Epaphroditus. Of all the men that Paul honors in this epistle, Epaphroditus gets the most attention. It's a eulogy that will build to a climax. He contains verse 25. Yet I suppose it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and companion in labor and fellow soldier, 
but your messenger, uh, uh, but your messenger and he that ministered to my wants. He uses quite a few verses. He says, my brother here, a brother in Christ. And that was a new ideal in, in Paul's day, a new concept. Fellowship among guilds and soldiers was exclusive. The world was polarized into Greeks and Romans, Jews and Gentiles, aristocrats and plebeians, citizens, soldiers, and so forth. There was nothing exclusive or exclusionary about the early Christians. They were a family. <laughs> Don't you wish that described the churches today? But let's move on here. Paul continues, Yet I suppose it necessary to send you to Ephrodite, my brother, and companion in labor. That's another phrase he uses. He was committed, not just involved. I think we've all heard the cliche about the difference in ham and eggs. The chicken that provided the eggs was involved. The pig that provided the ham was committed. <laughs> so, and, but the, the, and our Jewish friends have the similar thing about lox and bagels, but I, I mean, uh, lox and cream cheese. But anyway, the church in Ephesus was lauded by Jesus in, uh, Raymond, uh, in uh, Revelation chapter 2, where he says, uh, speaking of the church in Ephesus, and has borne and has patience, and for my namesake has labored and has not fainted. Same thought there in, in the uh, critical letter uh, to Ephesus, but Jesus does give them credit for that. Being a companion in labor. And, uh, you know, despite the, in the American churches, uh, despite the financial and numerical success, um, the church in America increasingly become identified with the popular culture. And because of that, they become unable to speak prophetically to it. They become complacent, and they've lost their intellectual and their cultural dynamic, interestingly enough. See, it needs to be reconstituted as a working church in three ways. Intellectually, scout the shelves of any modern-day bookstores, and you'll find a denial of the fundamental doctrines of Christianity. We need clear thinkers. Winsome writers and persuasive apologists to reverse the trends and publish works of real and lasting value. Secondly, socially, we need to recapture an active role in addressing social concerns. Uh, com contrast that in the past with the abolition of slavery and child labor laws and things of that nature. And of course, not least, but certainly uh, very important, is evangelism. People need to be one. And they're not one in groups, they're one on a one-on-one -on -one basis. Let's, let's realize that. So he said, he's in, talking about Aphrodite, my brother, companion, labor, and fellow soldier. Now that's quite a label too. Epaphrodite fought side by side with Paul. That's what he's saying there. You know, the Romans pioneered shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder fighting, which led to their successes. The Roman phalanx were a terror to the ancient world. The wall of shields and the tortoise found a uh, formation that they would literally form a, like a, a tank by interlocking their uh, shields and, and uh, they would test their proficiency by <laughs> driving a chariot over it. Anyway, moving on. For he, Epaphrodite, he longed after you all and was full of heaviness because that ye had heard that he had been sick. And it was he's concerned because he knew they would be concerned when they heard he was sick. Philippi was about 800 miles from Rome. Traveling distance was at least six weeks, and the message that he was sick would have made a round trip in no less than three months, in effect. For indeed he was sick nigh unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. By the way, this verse is also a refutation of what the faith healers like to insist upon. They're often like Job's comforters. 
that sickness is a result of sin, a lack of faith, or God's chastening. How tragic it is that someone comes to a fellowship and with an illness and then finds that he's judged for that rather than uh, uh, helped, if you will. And uh, let's move on here. I sent him therefore the more carefully that when ye see him again, ye may rejoice and that I may be the less sorrowful. So you notice Paul did not teach the healing in the, in the atonement or that it was a birthright of all Christians. It's interesting that we never read of either Paul or his fellow laborers being miraculously healed. That's something people may overlook. Sickness is often a badge of honor among God's children. Now let's move on to verse 29. Receive him, therefore, uh, in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such in reputation because of the work of Christ. He was nigh unto death, not regarding his life, to supply your lack of service toward me. So he's emphasizing here by Epaphroditus' example, living for others. The high point of Paul's praise for his friend Epaphroditus was his sacrifices of his own interests for others. Now it's interesting, Paul himself was in prison and his, most of his friends had deserted him. And you know, I have to tell you candidly, uh, my wife and I, when we went through our dark, dark times, um, that we went through some pretty dark times. And one of the, the disturbing things about that experience was the abandonment of many of our so-called Christian friends. That, uh, that uh, we, we, had, we went through a, a, a bankruptcy. We are on the front pages of the financial uh, edition of the paper. And, and many, many, even among our Christian friends, we had leprosy because we, we were, uh, you know, we, we, <laughs> we were in trouble. And then, of course, we had earthquakes, and we lost our son. It goes on. The abandonment of our Christian friends through all that was really a shock. The good news was there were others that we hardly knew that rallied around us and were supportive, and, and my wife and I never forget that. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Messler, teaching through the book of Philippians. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.